Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today I'm talking to Robert and Michelle King, who are very big deal TV creators at a time when TV is in flux. They're best known for The Good Wife, which was a long-running show on CBS. Now they do most, or I think maybe all of their work in streaming. They've got two shows on Paramount Plus, more on the way. One of their shows, The Good Fight, starts its sixth and final season this fall. Welcome, Michelle and Robert. Thank you. Good, Thanks, good to be here. Thanks for having me. I, uh, thanks for coming on. I'm, I'm so flustered because I've, I've been watching your stuff for a long time. I was telling you guys, <laughs> I think I first started watching The Good Wife. I discovered it on flights back from California on Virgin America. Back, <laughs> yes. back a lot at, of people find it that way. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Um, so I, I want to talk to you about, about that show and your history, but let's let's start with the show that's that's coming to a conclusion right now. Um, the sixth season of The Good Fight, which is related to The Good Wife. If someone hasn't seen either of those shows, do they have to go back and watch hundreds of hours of programming before they can enjoy the sixth and final season of, of The Good Fight? I, I want to say yes, just to make them do it. But, <laughs> but the actual answer is no, they do not. They're different animals completely. The Good Wife was a legal drama set in Chicago with real world illusions and references. The Good Fight is a legal show set in Chicago with some of the same characters. Uh, what's the best way to describe it to someone who's coming in totally cold? It takes uh, one of the main characters from The Good Wife, played by Christine Baranski, and puts her into a completely different law firm majority African-American law firm, and it deals with the Trump years, how the Trump years are driving people insane. Good old driving liberals, liberals insane. Liberals insane. So it plays off the present day, but it does it in a very absurdist way because the news itself becomes absurd. So it's probably I was gonna, more I was gonna, comic than The Good Wife. It's slightly yeah. more comic. And more surreal. Right. Surreal is one of the words I was going to use to describe it. So without trying to explain what The Good Wife was, but The Good Fight has all kinds of flights of fancy. Characters are literally tripping at various points. Um, there's song and dance. It's still very serious. Is that because you wanted to do something that was very different or 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 somewhat different than The Good Wife, which you'd spent years working on and and how much of that was because you knew from the get-go this was going to be a streaming show instead of one on broadcast tv i think a lot of it was that we just wanted to amuse ourselves and we had more latitude because it was on streaming i think streaming allows for more kind of micro focusing on people and creating more specific entertainment a little maybe funnier a little more odd so it's a slightly odder show it also reacted to the news at the time. Right when we started shooting it, Donald Trump won instead of Hillary Clinton. And so it changed the whole dimension of what the show was going to be. Yeah, I, I want to I keep putting Trump off for, for a couple of reasons, but we'll, we'll, I do want to talk about him. But but um, in terms of streaming being a different animal, is that because there's less restrictions or and or is it because you think people are going to have to sort of work to find you and it's not something that's going to show up on 
their screen that they weren't expecting after 60 minutes or a football game? That's a good question. On on network, we were always not one of the most watched shows on CBS, which were also often just procedurals. But we mm-hmm. did well for them because they brought in the BMW kind of ads, which was a more specific audience. So streaming seems to be working off that idea, which is you're based on subscriptions, not on the number of eyeballs. And I think we were doing well for Paramount Plus now in that way. So I think it just gives you your ability to not try to cater to everybody in the world. Yeah, And the people that are looking at your scripts and your and the cuts of the show know that they they don't need to appeal to the broadest audience of America. It's for people that really want this specific show. If I remember correctly, the first episode of The Good Fight memorably has Christine Baranski saying fuck out loud. I can't remember if it was the beginning of the show or the at the end of the episode. It was right at the end of the first act. We were gearing it there. We wanted to get everybody comfortable that it was the show they already saw. And then she says, motherfucker. There we go. <laughs> we just lost so, all our money in some uh, pyramid scheme. And so oh, that's right. There's a, there's a Madoff thing. We with her, but yes. So was that something you guys knew from the get-go? Look, we're, we no longer have FCC regulations. Let's make the most of it. Did you have to, uh, you know, what was the reaction at CBS when you said, this is how we're going to start our new show for your, your new streaming service? You know, everyone smiled. It, it, there, there was no pushback on that at all. And it, it just, it tickled us and, and Christine is game. Yeah, I mean, it, it, what added to being funny is Christine Baranski is such a elegant person. To have her saying mother fucker as loud as she could just entertained us you know it was it felt like a really good way to end an act yeah you still entertained i like it and and <laughs> i was i was watching last night and again this morning i'm still struck by the fact that even though you can say motherfucker and you could have characters being much more frank about sex and all sorts of stuff it's still a one-hour procedural with A plots and B plots. It's, it looks like there are still commercial breaks, even though I think you can get Paramount Plus without commercials. Do you guys like the sort of format and structure of episodic TV? I would define it more as what I hate, which is people talking about TV shows as eight-hour movies. It's like, fuck you. I don't want to watch an eight-hour movie. I want to, What we think of our show as being is short stories, that creates some kind of narrative over all 10. So they still tell a novel-like story, but I want something where there's a beginning, middle, and end to the section you're watching, because I'm entertained by that. And I think things move faster. I'm bored by a lot of TV. They're like, well, don't worry, I'm going to answer that reveal. It's it's going to get good in the fifth episode. Yeah, just I it hear is. that so much. Don't worry, the first season, not one of the best. Wait till the second season. No, I don't have any time for that. So our intent is to challenge ourselves to make each episode really smart and great on its own, hopefully. What about format? Why not say, all right, let's make a beginning, middle, end, but let's make it 90 minutes or let's make it 10 minutes or, you know, you can do any, in theory, you can do anything you want, but it seems like either you're required to have a more traditional structure or maybe you just like that. You just know how to make that that, that format. Well, they would balk, they being Paramount Plus or I imagine any streaming service, Mm -hmm. if it were over 60 minutes and I cannot imagine how anybody would respond if you brought them a a 10-minute episode after taking many, many millions of dollars to film (laughs) on an entire script. So there's latitude with streaming, but 
it's it's a latitude within within a certain box and i like it it doesn't bother me at all i i think the fact that you know it can be the story can be as long or short as it needs to be works well for us you guys came out of you you first uh, you you were in you were you were in hollywood trying to make movies for a long time in the movie business your story reminds me a little bit of Peter Gould, who who was tolling away for a long time before he sort of broke through with Breaking Bad and now Better Call Saul. How did you guys get into movies and how did you decide that you wanted to be in TV? I came to L.A., originally L.A., we're in New York now, but L.A. to make movies and just thought, well, they need scripts. So I'll just start writing scripts. And Michelle was reading scripts. And I think when you're in that business, you're just trying to find a spec that connects. I started with Roger Corman doing you know, the low budget. I did three for him. Famous sort of schlock movie maker oh, where, yeah. a lot of, where a lot of novice filmmakers got was, their start. The first movie was Killer Cockroaches. It was like that. But really joyous. I mean, because there was no pressure on it. You could be really comic when you did it. Mm-hmm. And then in features, it was just like, I ended up doing, I guess, four higher budget movies. And it's a very disheartening world. It, it kind of kills your passion because you're constantly rewriting what you wrote yesterday and then rewriting and rewriting, not making things better, but satisfying producers who need to justify their jobs. So it felt like what TV is becoming now, that's what features was in the nineties and the aughts was that. So did you come to TV because you thought it was better or just because film wasn't working out? Was there something about TV that appealed to you or just where you ended up? we kind of stumbled into it. We had an idea uh, for a cop show that we were playing with together. And then a director that Robert had worked with, Ron Underwood, suggested to him, why don't we look at a TV idea? And so he said, well, actually, Michelle and I already are working on something. And then the three of us went in and pitched it together and got that set up. And this is really before the prestige TV, golden era of TV. This is not when the best and brightest were making giant TV shows where you couldn't get A-list Hollywood talent to show up on TV shows. So what did you make of that when you started? So it's, all right, we're, we're in TV now. It's not what we thought we were going to do. Was it immediately better or did you have to sort of acclimate yourself? To I it? would say what was immediate better was the immediate answers. That, that so much of features was killing your spirit over you know, years, while TV killed your spirit over months, which was a better way to live. You know, so I would say that was a start, but things didn't really start cooking where t- feature people were coming over. We got in first, probably, or near the top, right after the 2008 writer's strike. And mm-hmm. then after that, feature writers came over with streaming probably in 2011, 12. And so I think we jumped the gun. But there. 2001 is when we pitched and sold our first TV show. Yeah. So that was when, you know, as you say, before everyone was doing it from the feature world, I think. And I always think of, it's now a trope to talk about sort of the, that golden era of TV being the, the, the age of difficult men, the Tony Sopranos yeah, and the Walter right. Whites. And, and you guys broke through without a difficult man show. You had a Juliana Margulies. Did you think about sort of what you were doing in opposition or in context of the other stuff? You actually had a whole parody about um, 
um, <laughs> those kind of shows at one point. I can't remember if it was in The Good Fight Artists or The Good Wife. Before noon, it was on Good Wife, and then continued. In yeah, the good fight. yes, it was great. It was very arch. You were, you were, you were, you were. Uh, I think you were going specifically after True Detective, <laughs> um, but, but yes. you tell me. Uh, so, so, so obviously, you were conscious of that trope. Where uh, as it as it grew, did you think about sort of how your show fit into that that I'll say milieu, but such a terrible word. I guess I'll answer for myself, and I'll be interested to know. Uh, for me, not at all. I was not thinking of okay, this is what other people are doing. We must do something to set ourselves apart. It wasn't that at all. It was being really interested in the sex scandals of the day and the women that were the collateral damage to them. Right. So the the good wife was 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 referencing uh, Elliot Spitzer and his wife and sort of a whole slew. And of... there were a whole slew at the same time, and and a lot of them the women were lawyers, just weirdly. So that's where it came from, not a, gee, how do we make a show about a woman because other people are making shows about men. And do you think people responded to that? Or they just thought it was a good show? I mean, I still think about just the fact that your show was on CBS, besides football, it was the only CBS show I've ever watched or have watched in a long time. I used to go to the CBS upfronts um, mostly just to get a sense of sort of how everyone else watched TV. And and you guys really, I mean, you, 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 it seems like you would have fit on an HBO or an AMC or an, pick any sort of prestige streamer instead of the most popular network, but someone who was doing very different stuff. I think we were just at often, we were just trying to entertain the cast with what we were writing in ourselves. I don't, I think CBS kept doing tests, wondering why the show became popular but, you know, like not figuring out because it was a mix of serialized and self-contained. And they wanted to jiggle or play with that percentage. But they keep getting back. Is the percentage correct? And audiences would say yes. So I think we were kind of led, uh, kind of allowed to play on our own for a while. What do you think? Yeah, no, we got, we got fortunate. It, it was an unusual show for them at the time in that there was more serialized storytelling than the average CBS procedural was doing at that moment. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they found that audiences were comfortable with that. And, and then they were comfortable with that and enjoyed it. And, and without trying to get you to criticize your, your current uh, employer, <laughs> I'm always struck. I, I always, I, I, I take it back. I have watched other CBS shows, but that'd be like when I'm at the gym, and uh, you end up watching a minute or two of NCIS. And I was just struck by, wow, these are like really the same shows that I watched in the 70s when there were only three networks. And they've sped up the camera work a little bit. And there's a black character now. But they're really pretty similar in that they're not asking the viewer to do a lot of work. You guys do. You're referencing current events. You're talking about technology. Sometimes the stuff is really sophisticated. You guys did an early crypto episode. And do you feel like your shows were giving the traditional CBS audience something they didn't know they could handle, but they could? Or you were bringing in people who weren't watching NCIS and 20CS? That is a really good question. I don't know the specifics of the audience. I don't a position to answer that. It's, it is an interesting question in terms of who made up the audience. Was it different than the people that were watching other CBS procedurals? We're not really in a position to know. But I do think the biggest difference between us and the other procedurals, usually it had double the plot. So it was just aggressively More. running through 
like three or four threads that were connecting or not and bouncing yeah. all over the place. So when you see an episode, you're never sure, oh, that plot, I completely forgot that plot. And so there's a real complexity, I think, in the structure uh, that what you say about the 70s and what CBS does and still does now kind of is maybe a little more simplistic in its way it's telling a story or two stories. We always found we weren't doing A, B, and a, B or even A, B, and C plots. We were going to D and E. Like, oh, mm-hmm. my God, we have to touch E again. So they were a little bit like all over the map. We'll be right back with the Kings after a word from this sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we're back. Like I said, you guys have touched on tech a lot. It's it's definitely not a tech show, and, and I'm not having you on because you talk about tech. But I am interested. It's clearly something that is interesting to you guys. You refer to it all the time, whether it's a case that one of your lawyers is handling or a client. You've got a Google-Facebook mashup called Chum Hum, <laughs> a very funny name. Uh, you did NSA wiretap plots. What is it about tech that interests you in terms of storytelling and plot? You know, it, 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 you're always trying to look for a different way into what is a boring trope, courtroom shows. And it felt like one of the ways in was through tech because tech was changing everything. Uh, I mean, it still is, but then probably even more radicalized. Uh, you know, the idea of a judge thinking, oh, he's not doing anything by friending someone, but that friend someone is someone on the jury. Suddenly the court has to address that. So I do think that, and also, you know, we were interested in a Bitcoin when it was $8 a Bitcoin. Uh, we were going to get gifts for our crew that year or Christmas party of giving them one Bitcoin each. But oh. we thought that was so stupid, so we got the windbreakers <laughs> instead. So $60,000 a Bitcoin later. Uh, yeah. it I think there's a lot of crew that would have preferred that other than the... Uh, the very lovely windbreak. <laughs> yeah. They at least have a good story. You've got a you've got a metaverse plot in the first episode of, of this season. Do you guys need to bring in tech consultants, or is this stuff you can you can no. just figure out by reading any newspaper at this point? Writers, because they procrastinate so much on their computers, are really good tech advisors on anything to do with what's up and coming. We will call people individually if there's something about the metaverse we want to find out. But you'll see that we slightly fictionalize, we increase the abilities of whatever the technology we're addressing. Yeah, but the, the thing you're showing off is the thing Mark Zuckerberg wants to have. Yeah, yeah it's, it's always the idea that let's use what might be happening two years from now. I talked to a lot of people who have made stuff for traditional TV or film and they moved to streaming. You guys have obviously done that, but you're still working for the same company. But that company has changed. Uh, most most obviously, um, it's got different ownership structure. It's got a different CEO. You're no longer working for Les Moonves. Do you feel the difference in, in working for what's now called Paramount and used to be called either CBS or Viacom or Viacom CBS? It's a bigger organization. So... There are more people that need to come to a decision on any given topic. 
uh, it's not that the decisions generally are different than they would have been four years ago, but there are more people involved making that decision. I mean, what's interesting, the less Moonves years, you really only had to satisfy one person for the longest time. And it was, uh, everybody was like, okay, would less like this, less like this. What's nice is who brought us in and who's always been our kind of consultant and collaborator with us, David Stav, who heads up CBS Productions, and he's still there. So there's a real comfort that, because we don't want to make our career crazily out of sorts. We want to we want to create comfort around what we're doing so we can make the show whatever we want. So I would say David Staff, a lot of the people are coming in, kind of grab on to whatever we're doing. So um, I think it's not as bad as people want. Hearing from other showrunners about what's going on at Netflix and, you know, the other places, I just feel relief because it is crazy out there. Scary kind of crazy. So you guys signed a new deal last year when when we were still in the Netflix is taking over the world era and every big media company was trying to make itself into Netflix. And Netflix is still a huge company, but there's been a reassessment of sort of what the entertainment companies want to do. Do you think your deal looks different if you sign it this summer instead of last summer? Do you think your expectations are different? If you're asking, is the deal making landscape different today than it was a year and a half ago when we were negotiating, my impression is yes. It is less favorable for creators this week than it was 18 months ago, and 18 months from now may be different again. You know, when you make any deal, you're saying, well, the grass could be greener. We're not in that mode of thinking the grass could be greener. I think we're in pretty good grass. There's the money, obviously, but but are there other components of the deal you think that would be different? Would they be different? I don't think so because the the profit participation for creators is not as healthy at Disney and Netflix, but it's pretty healthy where it is both at CBS and Paramount Plus because we kind of supply content content here. <laughs> TV shows, art. We supply yes. art. Thank you. <laughs> to Showtime when CW was around, you know, they've got, so we're not stuck at one place, but I would say you're always worried about how profit participation uh, for creators, but also if you're writers on the show, how it's declining at some of these places. How You only go two seasons. I mean, on Good Wife, we went seven seasons. Good Fight, we've gone six seasons. On Evil, we're now going to the fourth season. That's very unusual if you look at what's going on Right. Places like Netflix where they cut things off at the knees after the second season. And just generally, the old model of TV was writers and, and, and other participants would get paid upon success, right? You get paid some money, but if the show does really well, go, runs for many years, gets into syndication, then money gets handed out to everyone. And Netflix came in and said, we're just going to give you a pile of money up front. And that's that. And Disney has adopted that model. From the outside, it seems like, you know what? It's still just money. It's all just work that most people would love to have. Why, why, does, why does one model matter versus the other to you guys? Well, you could proctor the creators of Friends and Seinfeld and ask if it makes a difference what their percentage Absolutely. Is. But let's be clear, those were, those were lottery tickets, right? I mean, most people aren't going to have Friends and Seinfeld that's right. careers. I, you know, we bet on ourselves. Uh, that sounds very, you know, uh, hubristic. But I think the bottom line is I think every creator, uh, creator thinks they will do something that will last. I don't think they think, well, I just want to get through the door so that they can pay me something, uh, at, at anything at all. 
your hope is you'll go more years because a you know you don't often come up with great ideas for shows or work with great IP. So the more years you work on it, the better I think. And Mike, what do you think? You know, and and some of it there's a a mental health aspect to this as well, <laughs> which is just trying to spare yourself from bitterness, because if if you create SpongeBob and you have the type of contract that does not allow for profit participation, you're going to see billions and billions of dollars made over decades. And there's a universe where that eats at you. And who needs that? So if you can protect from that kind of bitterness, I'll be it. I, I know some people who make podcasts and, and write stories for online publications who have feelings about this stuff as well. But again, those are almost always the 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 friends, right? There's not many SpongeBob's, there's not many Friends or Seinfelds. I wanted to ask you about the pandemic. The last year or so, I'd asked people what it was like to make shows, and aren't they glad they're done in the pandemic? You guys made a specific pandemic show. It was called The Bite. It was very Zoom based. Do you think you'd ever want to try stuff like that again where no, you really are constrained? No. no. <laughs> that was the hardest show we've ever done. We thought it would be the easiest because it was all based on people's real apartments and things like mm -hmm. that. It was insanely difficult. So It was a rough show to produce. Also, the timing was not what we anticipated because we came up with the idea early-ish in the pandemic and the thinking was, all right, let's do this right now because no one can film in the traditional manner. By the time we started making the bite, people were back to filming in a more traditional way. I mean, with mm -hmm. all the protocols in place of you know masks and, and testing and all the rest of it. So we were making this weird pandemic show in people's apartments and a and a townhouse where. There was no crew in, with the actor. So it, it was awkward and difficult. But I still, I like the show. I think it's fun. Real split for people I've talked to, uh, whether they wanted to make content. Uh, I said it again, sorry. Wanted to make art that referenced the <laughs> pandemic either directly or obliquely or whether people just wanted to like skip ahead and just have their entertainment be delivered without the thought of, of mass deaths and, and masks. And you guys play a lot with real world stuff entering your shows. Do you, how do you think about the pandemic as plot or window dressing? You know, we had a conversation fairly early on, I guess it would have been at the beginning of our fifth season. Of Good Fight. About whether to have people wearing masks in the hall. And the worry was it would be, you know, like bell bottoms or something. It would just feel like, okay, that was of three or four months ago. Who knew, or it was hard to tell whether we were in a rolling pandemic world or a pandemic yep. world that with the shots would be uh, better. I kind of think what we did is limited pandemic content to like one episode. We have an episode where the investigator who has uh, kind of long haul COVID uh, has to remember his time in the hospital to help a case they're on right now. And so once you did that, you didn't feel like you were ignoring something that when we look back might be equivalent to the Spanish flu. When we look back at this in 20 years or 50 years or 80 years, this will be this massive demarcation point in American history. So you want it to acknowledge that in some way because the show at least tries to be addressing history as we're mm -hmm. going to 
look back at it in a few years. So anyway, that I think was our best option, other than the bike, which was, let's try to work because we'll go crazy if we don't work. Speaking of addressing history, so we, I put this off, so we'll do it now. Um, I was going to say you guys referenced Trump a lot in, in The Good Fight, and I asked you what the show was about, and you said it's about living in the Trump years. I'm sure I'm going to miss stuff, but other than like satirical, you know, John Oliver news parody stuff, I don't know of anyone who's who's put Trump and the Trump era front and center in in their shows. I mean, at all. It's astonishing. Uh, movies, television. When did you guys decide this is going to be a major? He's basically a character in the show. He's not, obviously not directly on it. When when did you decide that? And what was the reaction at CBS, which is a pretty conservative network for a fairly conservative audience? In the pilot, when he won the election, I, right away. And we never got a moment of raised eyebrows from CBS. It was because it also made sense to us creatively because Diane Lockhart, our main character, was so established as a liberal feminist. Mm -hmm. it, it was very clear that's how she was going to respond. And so we never got pushback that that was going to be a major, at least emotional focus. Of I the mean, show. the pilot was starting with the idea that Hillary won and that Christine Baranski's character would retire because glass ceiling, the ultimate glass ceiling had been shattered. Yeah. She'd go off to some, uh, you know, vineyard in the Provence. And then 10 days into shooting the pilot, uh, Trump won. So Michelle and I rescripted. So the first scene is her seeing the inauguration of Trump. Yeah. And that becomes this. And so I kind of think it provoked the show, even though the first season, it was only kind of a mix. It was probably in 50-50. And I think it's the second season because CBS was encouraging of those aspects that kind of broke the fourth wall to be about what was happening that moment that we went deeper in there. Because you could have referenced him, but not directly. I mean, Succession does a little bit of that. You might have also said, you know, this is like the pandemic. We don't want this to look like bell bottoms, and we don't want to have this to be a you know a four a four year or longer era where you knew exactly when this was made because they're talking about Trump all the time. And then the other reason to not do it would be, even though CBS was telling you telling me CBS was encouraging, you could say, you know what, there's some percentage of our audience that likes what we do and also doesn't mind Donald Trump. Might even like him. Um, and we don't want to lose them or turn them off. So did you think about all that? I think the show can be fair because it's satirizing Democrats. There's an episode about their hunting for the P-tape, the PP tape Yep. That is as much of a satire sense that they could get this silver, this silver bullet that will kill. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it has a lot of uh, Indiana Jones-like music whenever they get close to getting this video. So, I mean, it's this sense. And there's another episode where the Democratic Committee comes to our firm and says, because it's a black firm, we want to know how we're going to impeach Trump. You know, and this was two or three years before the first. So it's playing off this kind of Democratic sense of, okay, we got to, you know, play the old style dem uh, politics when in fact Trump introduced this new style politics. And so I do think it kind of pay, play both. And I was also thinking about his girl Friday, when you watch it again, how much FDR and politics of the day are very much part of that script and mm -hmm. it feels like it still feels alive a because of the content and the quality but also it kind of feels even more alive because definitely it's of a time period and it just addresses the time period in a very comic way so better that than you know another movie of the time that 
pretends, oh, we're in fantasy land. Nothing's happening in our world, you know? You guys are at the pinnacle of your career. You have enormous power. You've decided what you want to do with that is make a lot of television. And so in addition to The Good Fight, you've got Evil, uh, which is also streaming. Um, I was reading you've got a, another series you're working on based on a, on a podcast. Yeah, Your Honor is, uh, we're shooting now, Honor, Your Honor's season two. And then the thing we're working on next uh, with a showrunner is um, Happy Face, Happy Face, which is about a, serial, a daughter of a serial killer. Which Jen Casicio is, is running. So you have, I mean, obviously commercial obligations or you signed a deal that you're supposed to put out a lot of stuff. But do you feel like you want to put out a lot of stuff because this is your window to do it? Or is it just what you'd be doing no matter who you're working for and what kind of deal you had? I think it's just what we do. It's, it's, it's sort of as simple as that. You talk to more creators and stuff. Do you feel a window is closing on what I would consider 70s style filmmaking, which is very personalized auteur, auteur either as the writer or the director kind of filmmaking, five easy pieces, those kind of things. It feels like we're nearing a time where Jaws, et cetera, took over with the Lord of the Rings and, you know, the, the, the bill, half billion dollar shots at the moon that creators are going for. I feel like that, but I also feel like there's cycles and also, you know, a lot of this has to do with ownership, right? The, in the seventies, the, the movie studios are little, literally taken over by giant mega corporations and then they got split up. And right now they're getting sucked up into big mega corporations, but that can split out. I, the exciting thing to me is that, um, you know, you guys make expensive shows with stars and, and the sets look beautiful, but there's more opportunity than ever for people to literally pick up an iPhone and make interesting stuff. Um, and I think that there's always going to be ways for those people to break through and out. And eventually, you know, right now we're in a cycle where all those people make a great first movie and then they go make a crummy Marvel movie. Yeah, um, right. But I think they'll stop doing that eventually. <laughs> so as, a cons as someone who just consumes this stuff, I, I never get too worried that we're going to lose that 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 we're gonna lose the buffet, and it's also interesting to talk to varying groups of creators. I had B.J. Novak on the show a few weeks ago because he's put out a movie, which again is the kind of thing that he gets to do because he's a known quantity. But it's a it's a cheap movie for Blumhouse. Um, but he was saying he doesn't like the streaming boom because it diffuses talent, um, and that today you wouldn't make The Office because you couldn't assemble that cast and writing crew and, and producing crew. They'd, they'd be making 20 shows. We're finding that too. That it, you know, and it, it, the talent we get from actors is cause, partly because New York and Broadway and ev everything. But you're right. It, you're fighting for them because everybody's fighting for them. Yeah, you guys turned me on to one of my favorite Hamilton actresses um, who had a major role. And I have to look, look up her name too. Renee, thank you. Elise Goldsberry, yeah, she's yes. magnificent. Yeah, I was so excited when I went and saw the play. I'm like, I know her from the good one. Yeah, from the very first season. Yeah, she's great. Like I said, I really love um, my job because I get to talk to interesting people who make some of my favorite stuff, and that includes the two of you, uh, Robert and Michelle King. You've got the Good Fight. You've got Evil. Those are both available on streaming right now, and more to come. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thanks again to the Kings. Thanks again to Travis and Jelani for producing and editing this show, our sponsors for bringing it to you, and you guys for listening, for writing, for telling other people about it. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week, maybe live from L.A. See you then.